Hi guys, welcome to my Move and Inspire podcast. My name is Sophie Deer. I'm a yoga teacher, a health and happiness warrior, and like you, I am constantly doing my best to navigate this crazy world that we live in. My mission is to spread the zest that I have for life to each and every one of you and give you the chance to feel empowered, strong, connected, healthy, and above all, happy. I will be interviewing some kick-ass and inspirational people to motivate you to create transformations in order to live your best possible life. Hi, Clemmy. Hey, Soph. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are you doing? So I'm super excited that we're finally doing this podcast as we actually recorded it for the first time in London and it ended up going wrong. My microphone went wrong and we had that horrible clicking sound, didn't we? Yeah, it's um, it's really lovely to be able to get the time now to re-record it um, and to be able to share this with everyone. Yeah, I'm really excited. Even though we're over Zoom and I'm in Bali and you're in Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, in Hampshire. So like very far away, but the, the wonders of te- technology, hey? Exactly. So let's just start by... Um, jumping into a little bit of an intro to you and what you do. Clemmy is um, a nutritional therapist and she is also my cousin and one of my bestest friends. Um, So yeah, Clem, take it away. As you said, I'm a nutritional therapist um, and I help to improve the quality of life of people living with digestive conditions. So things like inflammatory bowel disease and also IBS, so irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and I guess a bit of background into how I got into that. When I was 11, um, I almost died. Um, I had, oh, I have ulcerative colitis, um, and that is the lesser known sister disease to Crohn's disease, which is, I know, more commonly known, and people always recognise that one. And um, I was diagnosed at age nine and then had quite a kind of quick, rapid decline in my health. Um, but luckily, I received amazing medical care and I had life saving surgery at 11 to remove the whole of my large intestine. And then I lived with a colostomy bag uh, throughout my teenage years and then had all my plumbing reconnected back again, aged 18. And I thought that was it. I was cured and that I could get on with my life again and that that was all fine. But um, unfortunately, uh, that wasn't the case. And the reality of it was that I was never really given any advice from my consultant or my surgeon Um, of how to manage my condition longer term or to prevent further illness. Um, And I battled for years really with my health after that through university and then I started a busy job in London. Um, And I got to the stage where I felt so ill and so helpless and so crap really. Um, And I didn't know what to do. I'd been back to my GP and back to my consultant and they'd run through loads of tests and they said you've got no problems with um, your ulcerative colitis anymore. We think it might just be IBS and just get on with it and deal with it. But I had lost my some of my hair. I'd lost loads of weight. I was really quite unwell. And I thought, I'm not sure that I can, can just continue like this. Um, so it was actually my mum's suggestion to go and see a nutritional therapist. And I thought, I'd, I'd never heard of a nutritional therapist before. I didn't know what they did. 
And I thought, well, I haven't got anything to lose. I'll go and keep mum happy. And actually, it was the best thing that I ever did. And it changed my life beyond anything I could ever have imagined. And then really that experience showed me um, the power that nutrition and lifestyle medicine can have. Um, and so I thought to myself, I don't want anyone to feel the way I felt again. And I want to make sure that everyone knows that that change is possible and that you can do more to help and support yourself, even if your doctor says that there isn't anything you can do. Um, so I retrained as a nutritional therapist myself. And I then set up my practice after three years of training. Um, yeah, and now I help people every day, people like me who went th are going through the same thing. Um, and it's, I love it. It's incredibly rewarding. Such an amazing story. I really remember so clearly when we were younger how we used to hang out and then suddenly we just didn't see you guys at all, you and your, um, your sister and your brother. We just didn't play together anymore. And I remember my mum telling me that you were really, really ill. And yeah, it was very, very serious, like kind of crazy to happen at such a young age. Yeah, I think it's something um, it being getting a diagnosis of a chronic illness like inflammatory bowel disease is something that really changes your life um, completely. And it's funny, I've been reading a lot recently um, because we're recording this during lockdown, um, reading a lot recently about um, now people, everyone else is experiencing what people with chronic illness experience, which is life stopping, basically, about not being able to leave your home, about not being able to see people. And that, I think, is quite a good comparison because that's what it's like when you get a diagnosis or when you're really unwell or when you have a flare up of a a lifelong condition that's what happens your life stops you don't see your friends you don't see your family um, some people it stops them going to work and yeah it can really have a massive impact so um, I guess people are having a bit more of an insight of what that's like at the moment yeah that's so interesting I hadn't thought about it like that my experience of having tummy problems I mean we've spoken about it um, quite a lot over the years but I'm now in a place where my tummy is in a really good place. And just what you were saying about how you went to your GP and they were like, oh, it's just IBS and kind of nothing gets done about it. That was exactly the same for me. Nothing happened, nothing happened. And then when I got signed off work, that was the time where I was like, right, I'm not taking this anymore. I'm going to really take this seriously. And I started to see the right people and um, saw a dietitian who took me through the FODMAP diet and that has totally changed my life and the way I can function day to day is so much better. I don't even really think about it anymore. And yeah, so I think finding that one person who's going to be able to help you and getting that help where I just feel like it's so, so easy to be told, oh yeah, you've got IBS and you have to live with it. And that's just not the case, right? Yeah, no, totally. And it's funny, I think... So um, IBS affects, I mean, the, the statistics of how many people it affects is quite wide ranging, but people think um, the stats say around perhaps 80% of people are not diagnosed, but suffer with some sort of tummy problems at some point. And with inflammatory bowel disease, it affects around 300,000 people in the UK. Um, and it's often with IBS is um, you go to your GP and once anything else more serious has been ruled out, 
then they will just give you either, I've had people who've been on antidepressants to help with it, um, also different fibre supplements and things, and often um, it doesn't help and um, people just uh, ended, uh, kind of get ended up being sent away um, and having to deal with it themselves. But finding someone who can help you and support you is really important because, and th this is one of the things that I really want to get out to everyone, is that there's always help out there. Um, even if your GP um, says, or oh, you'll just have to live with it. Um, I feel really sorry for GPs. You only get 10 minutes with each patient. You can't possibly explain and support someone through something like a low FODMAP diet or a diet or lifestyle change in 10 minutes worth of consultation. You just can't do that. So it's about going in, out and finding that person who's going to help support you. And whatever happens, there is something. If, if you're experiencing symptoms, it's because something's not quite right. And it's just about IBS shouldn't be kind of the end of the road um, diagnosis. So people get diagnosed and that's great because then at least you can say that um, kind of you've got something and you've got a starting point to work from. But that's what it should be. Just that is a starting point. It's not kind of the end point. That should be the starting point. And then it's working out. IBS can be caused by so many different things. And it could be one thing that's causing it in one person or um, a handful of things. And it's about finding out what those are with each person and then working out, OK, how do you move forward from this? How do you um, improve your symptoms and help manage them longer term? Um, and yeah, it is so important. And um, I think what we've discussed before and I know what you found and totally what I found as well is it's, it can be a really long journey. And I don't want that to be daunting for people, but that's where you need the support. You'll, you'll go through periods of time. And as you have found with the low FODMAP diet, it's a process, isn't it? It's a process of exclusion followed by a process of reintroduction. And that process of reintroduction is super important. It's like the most important bit because you can't live on a low FODMAP diet long term. It's not good for people to, to do that. You can live on a modified low FODMAP diet, um, just excluding the foods that don't work for you. But it's a process. And, and again, you can't um, go through that in 10 minutes um, with a GP. So it's about finding someone who can help. Yeah, really interesting. And I think, um, yeah, as you said, the fact that there's 80% of people who struggle with, I mean, I, I feel like most women I know have some sort of IBS problem. Yeah. Would you say it's more common in women? Uh, yeah, definitely. IBS diagnoses are more common in women. I know there's definitely a link between our hormonal cycles um, and IBS symptoms worsening. And yeah, it is a really common thing. So it's in terms of diagnosis, often people don't end up getting a diagnosis. Um, but I think the stat of 80% was people having some sort of digestive issues within the last year. And um, I'm not sure of the most recent stats on IBS, but they're pretty, it's the most commonly diagnosed condition for gastroenterologists to diagnose worldwide. Okay, so for you, because you are more trying to specialise in IBD, yeah. inflammatory bowel disease, which is things like Crohn's and colitis, is that right? Yes. So what's the most common problem you come across within that? So within IBD, it's, um, I guess there's this two, maybe, I know I need to pick one, but one I get, which is what I was told as well, is that people go to their gastroenterologists and they're told that 
what the food they eat doesn't make a difference. I actually spoke to someone on the phone yesterday whose um, gastro had said to them, if I'm doing my job properly, you should be able to eat anything. And um, it's just not right. You have to take a multi-pronged attack to these kind of conditions, these long-term conditions. And it's the same with IBS as well. You have to take, um, you can't just rely on medication. You have to look at the way you're living and the, um, the food that you're eating as well. Because of course, what you're putting into your intestines is going to make a difference on a condition that impacts your intestines and digestive functions and the, this inflammation in the intestines in inflammatory bowel disease. And um, so I guess, uh, yeah, so the first one I get is um, is people being told by the gastroenterologist that um, diet and lifestyle doesn't make a difference, but there is um, a, a multitude of research out there um, to show that it does. So that would be my first thing. Um, and the second thing I get is people coming to me and just saying, I don't know what to eat. I don't, I, I don't know what triggers me, what doesn't. Um, and I think it's just confusion around that and, and not being able to get the help and support that they need. And with IBD, is it the same as with IBS that um, your mental state can really affect it as well? Massively. There's um, a prevalence of things like anxiety and depression in inflammatory bowel disease. And we're understanding a bit more about why that might be. And it's to do with um, the connection that the brain and the gut have. So they're connected physically via nerves, but also biochemically. So what happens in your gut has an impact about what happens in your brain and vice versa as well. And an example of that is um, if someone um, is feeling kind of faced with a, a stressful situation or a trauma, lots of people get diarrhea with that. And that's that kind of the impact of what you're thinking and how that impacts your gut. I think that's quite a nice example of, of how that works. So yeah, there's a big connection between the way our gut functions and the way our brain functions and leading to things like anxiety and depression in people with digestive conditions like IBD and IBS. I just want to touch on something that me and you spoke about recently, which was um, some really interesting stuff that you'd been learning about fasting and then how that helps your or changes things in your brain and so on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. This um, fasting is something actually um, just generally. So alongside my clinical work with uh, clients in just one to one, I also go into different companies and give talks um, on a variety of different topics in nutrition and lifestyle medicine. And the one question, there's two questions I always get asked. One is about probiotics and the other one is about fasting. And there's some really interesting research around fasting and the positive impact that it might have on things like weight loss and um, also on blood sugar control, but also on our brain function as well and enabling our brain to be more, they call it neuroplasticity, so more able to reshape and re. I guess, yeah, reshape your brain. And one of the things that they think may help with that is um, a period, periods of um, short periods of fasting. That's so interesting because for me, like I love the topic of neuroplasticity. I'm actually doing like a neurofundamentals course at the moment because 
um, meditation, such a huge impact on the brain and uh, yeah, in relation to neuroplasticity. So that's really, really interesting. One thing I would ask is when you're talking about fasting, like how long do you have to not be eating for to it be considered as like fasting? So jury's out on how on how long. I think the difficulty that we have with the research at the moment, and this is what I always say to people, is that um, it's not there yet for us to just be blanket saying to everyone that they should fast. Um, there's totally caveats to people not being able to fast, and that's like being on things like medication and having to take it with food at certain times of the day. Um, and also some people just naturally can go for longer periods of time without eating. And some people don't like doing that and are, are better eating kind of little more little than often. And again, um, in terms of the work I do with inflammatory bowel disease, at the end of the day, um, often what I'm just trying to do is people are losing weight quite rapidly and we just need to get the food in. But in terms of just coming back to <clears throat> what you said in terms of time, Again, in the research, the timings are really different. Some you've, in terms of fasting, you've got so many different types. So you've got alternate day fasting. Um, you've got the 5-2 diet, which is a type of fasting. You've also got time-restricted feeding, which is a period of fasting and then a period of feasting. So that's normally 16 and 8, so 16-hour fast, 8-hour um, feeding window. So there's loads of different types, and I think that's why we can't pull the research together because there's no consensus about um, the time period. But I think I talk to people about it may be helpful in terms of our digestive health to have periods of time where we don't have food because this, despite what our gut deals with, it's actually a very clean organ. So it deals with food and it deals with poo. Um, but it has a very effective cleanup mechanism that happens, um, that starts to happen around 90 minutes after we've had a meal. But if we are constantly snacking and grazing, then that process is disrupted and can't happen. And so it's looking like it might be beneficial to have some periods of time between meals. But that doesn't need to be huge periods of time, kind of four hours or so. So you have breakfast and then you have or you have lunch and then you have a period of time without eating and then you have supper um, it looks like that might be from the research. It looks like that might be a positive thing. Um, and then just having a window of time overnight where you don't um, eat to allow your body to do all those repair and clean up mechanisms. And that can often help people with IBS type symptoms is looking at the pattern of eating and whether that might be impacting it. So I normally say for people overnight is is 12 hours if you can do it. And that's usually quite doable. It's kind of stopping eating at 8 p.m. at night and then starting eating if you fancy it at eight o'clock in the morning. For anyone who's who's like thinking of trying fasting, I definitely suggest that you speak to your doctor or your, your nutritionist before you try it, just to make sure that it's the right thing for you to do. And also, if you are going to experiment it, don't go like full on fast, um, because you might find that really difficult. Um, and it's about finding your um, your kind of time uh, frame that works for you so some people 12 hours by the time 12 hours is up they're starving hungry um, and that's fine whereas some people might be able to push it a bit more but I, as I said definitely some interesting research into the topic of fasting but not enough at the moment to be blanket recommending it but it definitely could be 
good for digestive health and for brain health and for weight loss. I guess this is one thing I want to add at the end there, though, it, that's interesting is that they have done research comparing fasting with calorie restriction in terms of diets. And although um, fasting has been shown to be a beneficial tool to use for weight loss, it's actually not been shown to be any more superior than a calorie restricted diet because it is just that. It is a form of calorie restriction because you're basically fasting for quite a long period of time and then you have a shorter period of time for an eating window. So naturally you probably eat less. So that's just something to add there. I don't know what you think about this. I mean, we've, we've kind of spoken about this, I suppose, before, because I feel like one of the things I, one of the reasons I really love talking to you about food is you have a very balanced and relaxed approach. And so for me, I have started doing the kind of 16, eight fasting diet. And it seems to be like working for me. I actually didn't know it was fasting. Someone said to me, oh, yeah, you're like doing intermittent fasting. I was like, really? I had no idea. I was just ending up basically having my breakfast later or like a brunch. And we've spoken about, though, is if I end up being hungry in the morning at 7 a.m., I'll eat. I'll listen to my body. So I've got more and more, obviously, the more meditation I've done and the more yoga I've done. Like when I was in TV, I didn't even know what listening to your body was. So now I can really like tune in and go, yeah, actually, I need to eat a little bit. I'm, I'm feeling hungry and my body's going to do well with some food. And I feel like that's a really, yeah, a really important thing for people to remember that we can put all these rules and regulations in place with things. But actually just tuning in, noticing how you feel, what it is you need is really important, right? Oh, totally. I mean, I, you know, I love wine and um, pizza as much as the next person. And I think that, oh, there's so much to talk about on this topic. I think that it's really important for us to remember, and this is something that I remind my clients about all the time, that food is um, nourishment and nutrition and information for our body and all of that. But it's also so much more it's about pleasure, it's about taste, it's about texture, it's about social interaction over meals. Um, it's so much more than just providing nutrients. And that's where um, I think it's really important not to put in big rules and restrictions around what you can and can't have and what's um, the often what I hear like all the time is people referring to foods as good or bad. And there's no inherently good or bad, or there's no inherently bad food. It's all about the context in which you have the food. And um, I think restricting ourselves only leads to kind of binging on those type of foods when we do allow ourselves to eat them. And that's not a healthy relationship with food. So I think it is really important to be a bit kind to ourselves and be a bit flexible. And you're so right. Um, in terms of being flexible, if you do decide to do something like, uh, I guess the example we can use here is the fasting. So we were just talking about that. If you decide to do that, not putting really, really strict rules and boundaries around that is really important and, and totally is, is taking the time to listen to your body. And I guess at the moment, and for me, I work for myself, so... I can my eating styles um, again, like yours, can be can be a bit more flexible, and um, 
I just listen to my body and eat when I fancy it. And sometimes, like this morning, that was at 8.30 for me because I felt starving hungry when I woke up. But some days I don't actually feel hungry and I'll do a bit of work and then perhaps I'll eat at around 10 or 11 when I do feel hungry. Um, so it's just about finding out what works for you. And something I think that's really interesting is about that kind of listening to our body thing is we're so, I mean, I think we've all had a bit of a chance or many of us have had a chance to slow down a bit recently, but we live such a fast paced life going from one thing to the next and that rarely kind of check in with ourselves. But our body is constantly telling us things and sending us messages, but we've just got to take the time to listen to what it's saying. And I often talk um, about that with my um, IBD clients who are often kind of really tired and pushing themselves and pushing themselves and um, saying to them, if your body is tired and you're feeling like you can't put one foot in front of the other, you need to listen to, to it and listen to that because the more you push yourself, um, the less your body's going to have the energy to be able to do everything that it needs to in terms of repairing itself. Um, and then if you just keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing, like you get to the stage where you break. We can't just keep going at 100 miles an hour. And, and I guess, yeah, coming back to listening to ourselves, if we kind of take a bit of time out and say like, hmm, how, how am I feeling? Then it, that's really important. And again, just one more thing to add on that front is um, I spoke about the kind of having four hours perhaps between meals, if that feels right for you. But for some people, that just doesn't work for them. They feel hungry or they're really active and they need to have those snacks or perhaps it works better for someone um, to have smaller meals. So it is just working out what works best for you. It would be so much easier if we could blanket tell everyone what was the right thing to eat, because then I think it would, well, it would remove all confusion. But the reality is when it comes to nutrition is that we're all wonderfully unique. And um, so we need to find out what works for us. And that's often a period of experimenting and trial and error and just being kind to ourselves. Kindness all the way. Kindness all the way. So I guess I want to just touch on something that I think is really interesting about your job, actually. When you say a nutritional therapist, I always think, oh, you j someone would just come to you and talk about food. That's, that's all you would talk about. But your, um, your clinic is actually called the NAM Clinic, and it's nutritional Nutrition and, and lifestyle, lifestyle medicine. medicine. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so you talk a lot about yeah, mental health, yoga, meditation, sleep, things that we can do to support our guts. So I'd love you just to kind of touch on that and the advice you you give some of your clients. Yeah, totally. And it is so important. So I talk a lot about um, pieces of the puzzle when I'm talking about um, looking after ourselves and what I do. So um, food is a big piece of the puzzle that I deal with and nutrition, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle. What we do, so in terms of activity, our sleep, our stress levels, all play a massive role in our health as well. And you can't really do one without the other. Um, you kind of have to do little bits of, of all of them if you can. And particularly when we're looking at digestive health. So we know um, in particular for inflammatory bowel disease that um, stress is one of the major triggers for flare-ups. 
And again, with IBS as well, it's hugely impacts, um, stress hugely impacts our digestive function in so many ways. So it's, it would be mad of me really not to look at all those different parts of the puzzle. And actually, I often get people who come to me um, on pretty good diets who've already done quite a lot of work on themselves. And there's, there's usually um, more things that we can do um, on that front, but then looking at the other pieces of the puzzle as well. So if you're eating a really nutritious diet, but you're only sleeping for five hours a night, and you have a super super stressful job and you don't and you're running around all the time then one you're not going to be getting everything from that new nutri- uh, nutrient dense food but also those things like the massive stress and the lack of sleep is is going to have a massive impact on your health as well so it's really important that we look at all those pieces of the puzzle to build that kind of complete piece basically so you need to focus on all the different ones. And that's what I do. So I focus on um, looking at someone's sleep, looking at uh, movement, looking at stress and all the lifestyle things. And there's certain things that I can help with on that front. But I also always, if I think that someone needs extra help and support beyond what I can advise, then I have um, a team of people that I work alongside. So people who specialize in movement stuff so you I'd refer people to you and your move and inspire site if I thought that it was the right thing for them to be doing that kind of thing and for them to get the proper help in that specific area so my kind of specialist area is in nutrition um, and a bit of lifestyle medicine but I know when it's right to refer people for extra help and support I can do the foundations and the basic things but sometimes someone needs a little bit of extra help and that's where I, when I'd refer them to a psychologist, for example, if I thought that they needed extra help with that. Awesome. Keep them coming towards my Move and Inspire channel. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I will. I actually did one of your um, 30 minute yoga sessions this morning before we recorded this podcast. So feel good. I feel great. Good. Thanks for the sales <laughs> pitch. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, so one thing I want to touch on, because you talked about it earlier, was prebiotics, probiotics. And actually, let's talk about both, <laughs> what the difference is. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about prebiotics too. Um, yeah, so it can get confusing because there's two of them. And so I'll explain a bit about both. So prebiotics are the fibre that our body doesn't use, but the trillions of microbes in our, that live in our intestines use as their food. And their job is um, to help to keep us healthy. So um, the prebiotics are the food that they use as food in order to thrive and to help us. And that they come from, from plant fibres, basically. So that's the, the fibre that, that people talk about. So things like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, um, spices, herbs, everything like that. And... What we do know in terms of kind of fibre and digestive health is that the research shows that um, people who consume 30 or more plant fibres a week seem to have the most diverse number and range of bacteria um, and microbes that live in our intestines. And we know that diversity is associated with good health. So, And there's also more specific um, prebiotic fibres that you can have, things like 
like inulin and something called FOS, uh, and also various different other ones which feed the specific bacteria. But probiotics, on the other hand, are the bacteria themselves that you can take. So you can either take a probiotic tablet or a liquid or a sachet, or you can eat probiotic foods. So that's the bacteria themselves that you can put in that will help and do their job as you do that. I think um, something that's really important and a misconception in terms of probiotics from the research we have so far is that they don't reseed the gut. So that's quite a misconception. Um, so people think that you can kind of repopulate the gut and the microbes when you have the probiotics. But what we can see from studying it is that when you take a probiotic, the bacteria do their job as they're going through, but then they're excreted. And if you stop taking that probiotic around between two and five days afterwards, you can't detect that bacteria in the poo of the person taking it. So they're very much what we call transient. So they do their job as they're going through, um, which can be great. And but then once you stop taking them, their effect stops happening. The only thing that they can do as they move through, though, is to change or help to alter the bacterial makeup within our intestines. Um, so it's really important. One thing that I focus on mainly is looking at food and the prebiotics. So how can we feed the bacteria that's already in there rather than just putting in something to, to try and kind of bypass that? So it's really important. I always go with food first with everything. So it's important to look at where are those fibres coming from in your diet? What's your diversity like? Are you getting those 30 or more different plant fibres a week? And um, are you doing everything you can on that front? And then probiotics, though, can be really helpful for some people. What is important to remember in terms of probiotic, though, is this very specific strains that are researched to do very specific jobs. And you can kind of <clears throat> liken them to breeds of dogs, I suppose. So you wouldn't use um, a chihuahua for crowd control. You, you'd need a, a Doberman or whatever for that. And it, it's the same with probiotics. So they're studied and used for very specific purposes. So it's important to get the right one for the thing that you're trying to do. And again, with that, there's a little bit of research to show that certain strains of probiotics can actually worsen the risk of relapses in inflammatory bowel disease, particularly in Crohn's disease. Um, so it really is important that you're making sure you're getting the right one um, for the right job. But saying that, probiotics can be incredibly helpful for some people. And just, I guess, a last one on that front in terms of probiotics is that there's no licensing and regulation around them. There's no licensing and regulation around any supplements. So just because it says on the packet that it contains a certain strain or um, amount of strain, it doesn't mean that that's definitely going to be live, to work, to do its job when it gets in to your intestines. And actually, there's only about probably four different types of probiotics that have been shown in larger scale clinical trials to have impacts on IBS, for example. Um, whereas there are probably there are tens of thousands of different products that you can go with. So it's certainly worth getting the advice and help and support um, from someone in terms of what probiotic you should be taking if it's appropriate for you. If you're someone who doesn't have any kind of medical condition and you just want to support your health and your digestive health as much as possible, then including probiotic foods 
um, is really good. So things like fermented foods, so kefir and kimchi and sauerkraut and um, natural yogurt and things like kombucha and miso and things can be really helpful at just helping support that diversity. So that's sorry, that was a very long winded answer to just quite a short question. No, big question. Though. It was super interesting. What I wanted to ask you was when you say 30 different types of fiber or, or 30 different types of plant fiber, is that what you said? Plant, plant foods. So 30 yeah. different plant foods a week. Yeah. So that's basically your fruit and veg. No. So that is, so it includes your fruit and veg, definitely. So it's your fruit, all your different types of fruits, all your different types of vegetables, all your different types of grains. So everything from wheat to, to rye to uh, rice and all of those all count as well. Also every different type of nut and seed. So like almonds, cashews, that kind of thing. And also different herbs and spices as well. So they all count towards that 30 a week. And it's, it's actually quite an interesting thing to do. And perhaps um, people listening uh, might want to do this as a little kind of, I guess, a little homework from the podcast is have a write down over the next week of the different plant foods that you eat and see how you're going towards the end of the week. If you're falling short of that 30, then how can you um, look at incorporating different other types of fruits or vegetables or grains or nuts or seeds in order to get that magic kind of 30 or over 30 number. It's something that I get some of my clients to do and it can be a really helpful thing. And it also, I think we're great creatures of habit. So we often will stick to choosing the same fruits and vegetables when we go to the supermarket or having the same rice or whatever. So just mixing it up um, can be really good and kind of making that list of the different plant foods can be really encouraging to do that. And there was just one thing I wanted to say more on that, which was just because I'm saying 30 different uh, plant foods a week, it doesn't mean that that means you have to go vegan. You can do this on any different dietary pattern that you follow, whether that's vegetarian, vegan, omnivore, whatever you do, you can do that 30 different plant fibers alongside of that do beans and pulses count as well oh yes that's another one let so legumes beans pulses lentils well done it's uh yeah definitely they absolutely count and they're a great source of fiber as well thanks for reminding me on that one mm -hmm. so it's basically plant foods and or any plant foods um will count and the different kind of breeds and types count so as i said if you're not it's like not just because you've had nuts and seeds that it will they count as one so almonds will count as one cashews will count as one sunflower seeds will count as one etc so and then your beans pulses lentils all of the different types butter beans etc get them all in i'm going to do my list for you great do it and send it over <laughs> <laughs> i think we're going to have to do a part two at some point because we um we wanted to talk about energy levels because i think that's been something that's really fascinating but let's save that because i think that could be a whole podcast in itself because we've we've talked about that a few times and there's just so much that i know you can say and i know how passionate you are as well so for now clemmy thank you so much that was super super insightful i mean we do these these chats quite often and each time i learn something sometimes forget things but each time i learn something so thank you so so much for um for, yeah for coming on my podcast well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, keen for a part two at some point, if, if you are. Definitely. Part two on energy levels. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much, Soph. Thank you, Clem. 
Clemmy. As always, I have absolutely loved chatting to you. Each time we chat, I learn something new. I feel so lucky that our careers allow us to spend more time together. And it never really feels like work. It just feels like we're able to catch up, have a chat, talk about nutrition, yoga, mental health. It all ties in so well together. You are amazing. Your story is incredible. What you've been through, almost losing your life at such a young age. And I think it's so cool that you're now at this point where you get to help people who've been in a similar situation to you. And I know that you are totally changing people's lives with what you do. I'm really excited to be able to do a part two with you soon. So stay tuned, guys. Thanks so much to you guys for listening to my Move and Inspire podcast. Stay tuned for more interviews with some incredible people in wellness. Let's aim together to find our inner strength and to keep searching for what it is that sets our souls on fire. If you haven't already subscribed, I would love for you guys to check out my membership channel, Move and Inspire, for yoga classes, meditations, health and wellness tips, and recipes too. You get a free trial when you sign up, www.sophiedeer.com.